Our Lord, we pray that you would speak until the earth is filled with your glory and let your servants be the mouthpiece for your word in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And you may turn once again to the book of Romans. Book of Romans chapter 8. Still in the great chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Roman church of the first century. Just think of it, a thousand years ago, and we're still reading this letter and deciphering the meaning in it. And it means, I can promise you, it means as much today to us as it did to the Romans who received it then. By the power of the Holy Spirit has been with the church then and now and forever will be. And so, I'll ask you to open to Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, rather, verse 16. I'll read 16 through 18 this morning. And so the apostle writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, add the power of the Holy Spirit to his presence, who is with us always, O Lord, as we proclaim your word this morning to the saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's an awesome three verses. It's about promises and promises fulfilled. And so verse 17 begins, um, well, verse 16 tells us what? That we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. We're heirs. We're going to inherit something. And that's what this passage is about. In In fact, I can make the case that that's what the Bible is about. It's about an inheritance that we seek. If we're children, then heirs, heirs of God joint heirs with Christ. In other words, we'll inherit what he inherits of the Father. If indeed we suffer with him that we may be glorified together. So we'll talk about inheritance this morning. One of the first things that comes to mind with regard to being a child is the prospect of inheriting that which belongs to the Father. That's what children do. They get our stuff when we leave, and we're pleased to give it to them. I have three boys, and my stuff will belong to them when we leave. There's just no, there's just no discussion about that. It's, I mean, of course, you have to write it down, drop wills and those things. This is the will of God in the other sense, the test, will and testament of God. I have three sons. I remember one time they asked me about inheritance, and um, according to... Jewish tradition, the oldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance. So I said, well, Daniel will get the house. And as you know, we have a great barn and workshop at the side of the house. And I said, James will get the barn. And we have this little diminutive little shed in the backyard. (laughs) And uh, Joe is about that big. Can the camera see that hand? About that big. And I said, and Joe will get the shed. And Joe cried. (laughs) He did. He cried. There's still a little tear in his eye when I tell the story. (laughs) Should never have come here this morning, Joseph. (laughs) But no, uh, my boys will share equally in those things as, as we did with our parents and someday will with... Karen's parents and her siblings, and that's the way it should be. We expect that. My father had it. He worked for it. He loves us. It's the natural course of things that we receive the blessings that the father built for the children. That's why we build such things. And so today's, today's teaching is about inheritance, but the verse is a continuation of the previous statement that the Holy Spirit himself, you know, that might be the only place in scripture where Paul says the Holy Spirit himself. In other words, 
by himself, without our aid. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness upon our spirits, and we labored over the meaning of that last week. I tried to show from Scripture that there's a a robust New Testament record of just what it means for the Holy Spirit to bear witness upon our spirit. And what does that mean, our, our spirit? It means our inner man, our hearts, our minds, our souls. Friends, you, you are a spirit. You have a soul and you live in a body, but you are a spirit. Your spirit is you. And remember, the Holy Spirit discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart, the writer of Hebrew tells us, right? The writer of Hebrew says. So I tried to show from Scripture that there is this New Testament record of what it means. We don't have to just go and ask each other, oh, what was it like when the Spirit came to you? We have a record of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit falls upon people and empowers them and gives them this taste of his presence. And so there are various actions of the Spirit. He meets us, friends. He meets us in times of trial. He meets us in times of quiet prayer. The Holy Spirit is with us. We ought to be able to sense his presence there. And if you don't sense it, stay there until you do. That's my advice to the prayerful Christian today. So he meets us, friends. You know, I at, in the evening sometimes, particularly on Friday and Saturday, because I've, I've, I've worked on the sermon those mornings, and we'll be having dinner in our family room. And uh, Karen might start cleaning up or something, and I might be left there alone, and I'll sneak out the back door, and I'll go out through the porch into the yard, and I'll look up at the sky, particularly these times of year when the sky's very clear, and there are stars, and you can see the majesty of God. And I, and I have an appointment with God to be there, and he expects me to be there. It's the cool of the day when I hear the Lord's footsteps in the garden and I go out to meet him. I had some friends stay at the house one time recently. It was fact, well, not recently, quite, quite some years ago. In fact, it was Andrew and Emily Belli. And I said, listen, in the evenings on Friday and Saturday, Andrew, you have to sneak away because the Lord's going to be waiting for someone out there, and I don't want to disappoint him. I want you to go out and meet the Lord. Um, so the Holy Spirit speaks to us, friends, but he even speaks apart from words. Now, his, his main mission is to unfold the written word of God to our hearts, but there are those times when he speaks to us in other ways, apart from words. This is the truest sense of communion with God. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not part of God. He's not the mind of God. He's not the force of God. He is the essence of God. It's a mystery But there are several mysteries that will be unfolded to us in eternity, or not. But for now, we know that the Holy Spirit is God, and he speaks to us in this way. It's the truest sense of our communion with God. We know he's present with us. Only the Christian can know that. Every other person that speaks of a a spiritual companion who does not know Jesus Christ, it is a counterfeit of Christ. It's not the real thing, but the Christian can know God, and he can know that he knows God. So in the moment that we are changed in that wonderful, miraculous way, we are met with this bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits. This bearing of the Spirit, is this, it's this action of a spiritual conversation, if you will. I couldn't find the right word. Maybe it's a spiritual conversation. Maybe it's a spiritual appointment, like I just pointed out. Maybe it's a, just a meeting between you and God. But it's the bearing of God upon our hearts, between father and child. And there are tokens of that conversation bestowed upon the child of God from that time onward. Friends, sometimes our prayers are answered so rapidly and so often that I think we forget to thank God for them. Does that happen to you? I know it happens to me. Oh, yeah, that's right, that happened. I prayed about that. Thank you, Father, for that. 
But in the moment we're changed, when the real miracle happens upon our hearts and we're changed, that wonderful, miraculous moment when we're met with this bearing of the Spirit upon our inner being for the very first time, the spiritual being, if you will, must take place for the recipient to become a Christian. There's no other way to become a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit bearing witness of his existence upon your spirit, of the truth of Scripture. Only the Holy Spirit can can show you the truth of Scripture. I told you, I had Bible instructors for years in college courses who treated the Bible, they knew the Bible front to back, but never had the bearing of the Spirit upon them. They saw it as myth and legend, and they taught it in that light. But this connection between the Spirit and the receiver of the Spirit must happen for the regeneration of the soul. That's a born-again believing soul. The action of being born again is this bearing of the Spirit um, of God, showing us the supremacy of the supremacy rather of Christ his Son. There's no true belief in God apart from belief in the Christ of Scripture. And it is the Holy Spirit that enables, incites, and allows that belief to come upon you. If you believe in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit gave you the power to believe what you once could not believe. If your spirit cries out to God, it is because God put it in your heart to cry out to him. He is always the initiator. It's always the bearing of the Holy Spirit upon us. There is no true belief in God apart from belief in the Christ of Scripture, every other form of spiritual action or understanding is a counterfeit action. It's an emotional or psychological or intellectual action only. But this is spiritual, and it's deep, and it's real within the believer. And he does not mistake it or doubt it. Christ alone is the gateway into any mean of meaningful communion with the one true creator God of the universe. Jesus said this very thing. He is the gateway. Jesus said it like this very succinctly. I am the door. Called himself a door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and he'll go in and out and find pasture. I like that whole picture. Go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. You know, some time ago, it might have been in the uh, grain of wheat series that I did uh, from, uh, from the Gospels. It might have been a series I did on the Gospel of John some years ago, but I looked into that I am the door thing. And the commentator I was reading at the time did some investigation on that, and he was in the Holy Land. And I'm talking in our era maybe some few decades ago, but certainly not of old. And he was speaking to a shepherd in Palestine at the time. And he asked, and in the, in the um, ensuing conversation, the shepherd mentioned to the commentator, he said, these are my sheep. And he said, I'm the door. And he said, I know that phrase. What, are you quoting Jesus? He didn't know anything about it. This was a Jewish shepherd. And he said, no, I'm the door of the sheep. And here's how he explained it. The sheep at a certain time of year would go into the fold, and the fold was this, was this stone corral that protected them on almost four sides. And then there was this gate, this gateway into the fold. And in certain times of the year when the sheep were in danger, the shepherd would sleep in the gate. He said, I am the door to the pasture. So when Jesus said this, the people of his day would have known exactly what he was talking about. And they would have made that connection strong in a pictorial way in their minds, and they would not forget it. And now you have it pictorially in your mind. Jesus is the door. He's sleeping at times, or he's guarding, let's say. The Lord doesn't sleep. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, but he guards the doorway of the sheep. And there's no way in except through that door. And that's what he's talking about. The only way to recognize the Lord Jesus as the door to salvation is by an action of the Holy Spirit within the new believer. It is the bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits. Spirit, uh, bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits, and so as the Spirit is the agent of this action, right? The hearing of the word preached is the instrument of it. 
We're saved by hearing the word preached. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul, James said. Chapter 1, verse 21. It's the bearing of the spirits upon our spirits. So the spirit is the agent of the action, and the hearing of the word preached is the instrument of the action. God uses means to save his people and to sanctify them. The two go together, word and spirit, working in unison to regenerate a human soul. Now I have to admit, as I went into researching this concept, I came across a new concept that I was not aware of. Maybe you're aware of it. But I'll tell you what it is. As I read, and you know I read from the New King James, that translation does not specifically speak to the concept that I now have been introduced to by several of the great commentators on this passage. Now, I know what it is to be earnest, but they speak of an earnest of the Spirit. Have you heard that? Does your Bible say that, an earnest of the Spirit? Um, I know what it is to be earnest as an adjective, right? But this earnest is a noun. The Spirit is the earnest, is what he's saying. I know the importance of being earnest. For you Oscar Wilde fans. Eric's an Oscar Wilde fan. (laughs) But the concept of the so-called earnest of the Holy Spirit was a foreign subject to me. I discovered it through Lloyd-Jones. I looked into Calvin. He spoke of it as well. Both Calvin and Jones spoke of it in the context of Romans 18. Douglas Moo writes of it this way. He said, The Holy Spirit's not only instrumental in making us God's children, He also makes us aware that we are God's children. He gives us this initial pledge, this earnest. And in every other case I investigated, the commentators made reference to a companion verse from 2 Corinthians which speaks of Christ Jesus leaving believers with a palpable token of his reception of you as brethren in Christ and as the adopted sons of God. And so my version reads like this, the New King James. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God and also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's why I had not been familiar with this concept of the earnest. Other versions say it differently. The old King James renders that verse this way, "Who who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. If you're thinking, what is the earnest? I'm going to get to that. The American Standard reads this way, who has sealed us and gave us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. The New Living Translation. And he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. So instead of the earnest, he calls it a first installment. The New American Standard says it this way, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Now, I think that from the preponderance of translations that we should be able to derive the meaning of the verse in a more specific way. The bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits is a pledge from God that there's more to come. It is a first installment. Lloyd-Jones even went so far as to call it a down payment, and he gave the example of a mortgage. Not, you're not paying it all now, but you're securing it with this pledge. With, and they call it an earnest. I was not familiar with that use of the word until this week. Others refer to this bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits as a taste of God's nearness and a sample of what is to come. The bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits is an experiential thing. Yet as you know, I labored last week to demonstrate that we need not be left to our own experience to explain biblical phenomena. We have a record of the Holy Spirit's intervention in the hearts of the saints. And I gave several examples of that from the New Testament last week. We'll look into them briefly again. We noticed that the word witness from the Greek, martis, speaks of a person who testifies of a truth by his death. That's what Christ did. 
That's what we do with him by faith. We share in the fellowship of his sufferings by the things we suffer and endure in his behalf in this life. From verse 1 we read, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus... uh, I'm sorry, verse 11 from this chapter. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the Holy Spirit who'll raise the faithful when they die. Friends, you cannot die. I hope I've demonstrated that well from Romans. It could not be otherwise. Your spirit will not experience death. For how could a man die if the Spirit of God dwells within him? He's become as Christ was in this particular way. Death could not hold him, friends. Death cannot hold you. Because the same Spirit that was in him and raised him is in you. And at certain times in our walk, we receive this earnest, if you will, this pledge, this presence, this other, other places called this guarantee that we are the children of God. How many times have I told you religion is about death? When you near it, that's when religion becomes really important to you. And you recognize that all your life you were prepared for this moment. And it becomes a glorious moment. And so it is his bearing upon our spirit that is this taste, this pledge, this first installment of that glorious promise to come. Now we have but a taste, but later the full reality of being filled and renewed and empowered and filled with eternal joy. Paul hints at this to the Corinthians. Remember this verse? Now we see in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Peter wrote similarly about this very thing. He said, We have been giving exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Peter speaks of this very thing, this earnest, this pledge, this down payment. It's the reality of God in us. It's a sampling and a taste of what's going to happen in our eternity. It's the bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits, and it's powerful. It can be comforting. It can be exhilarating, but it's unmistakable. It is, as Jesus said elsewhere, where where we read, he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, they were not yet empowered to be the witnesses of Christ that he intended for them to be. That was a future thing that he would give to them. When he left the world, he promised, I'll send the Spirit, and the Spirit will lead you into all righteousness. Now, I went over this last week to promote the idea that we need not interpret Scripture by our own experience. That amounts, I think, very often to a de-glorifying of the actual thing. I I talked a bit about how we don't expect the miraculous in our lives anymore. And we sort of don't look for it. And maybe we quench the Spirit. That's an action of the Spirit we haven't spoken of yet. But the Spirit came at Pentecost with wind and fire, you remember, and signs following. And that was a taste. That was a pledge of greater things to come. He came also to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who was a godly and prayerful man, but he hadn't yet had this earnest of the Spirit. He hadn't had the Spirit bearing upon his spirit, which Peter summarily imparted to him. Luke writes this, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all all those who heard the word. The Holy Spirit loves to fall upon you while you're hearing the word of God. He glorifies the word of God. That was that taste of glory, that sealing of their hearts. It was the earnest that we read of. Peter and John, you may remember, endured beatings and threats of beatings, berating and threats of imprisonment, and yet Luke writes of their reaction. They had all this threatening because they were 
vociferous in the word. They had this spirit bearing upon their spirit. They couldn't help but preach the word of God. Nothing could stop them, not even fear of death, not death itself. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. What do we do? Don't let me suffer shame. (laughs) You know, um, they rejoiced that they suffered shame. And then we read, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The earnest is a taste of this. It's the power. But it's not a mere taste. It becomes the power to evangelize. It's the power to proclaim Christ, and the more he's proclaimed, the greater the witness grows within us. Now, I've called this radical disobedience. They were specifically told not to do something that God not only told them to do, but put his spirit in them so they couldn't do anything but that. It was civil disobedience, radical disobedience to illegitimate authorities. Now, let me say this to you, and you know we've covered this really many times. There's no such thing as a good Christian who is a bad citizen. We obey laws. But there comes a place in our Christian walk where the laws of men directly conflict with the prompting of the Spirit of God in the believer. I'm going to give you a great example from Jeremiah the prophet. It's about preaching, and I call it the Jeremiah principles. That's my word. You won't find that in the, in the uh, theological dictionaries of, of theological terms. The Jeremiah principle is this. This is Jeremiah speaking. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Friends, the great, one of the greatest prophets of all times is whining about being mocked. All right? For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. And I said, I'll not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. Even Jeremiah couldn't take the pressure. But then the Spirit came. The Spirit drives us to take the pressure. In fact, it takes the pressure off. It's not pressure anymore. It's just duty. And so he said, I'll not make mention of him nor speak in his name anymore. He thought that was the solution. I'm tired of being persecuted. I'll stop speaking. And then he writes, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was was weary of holding it back, and I could not. He could not hold back the power of God to do what God had called him to do. Quiet, babies. He said, okay. No, just consider there are people hard of hearing in front of you. That's all I'm saying. Um, Stephen's witness went further. It went all the way to glory. Talk about religion being for death. The Spirit first bore witness upon him and upon his listeners that day. He died gloriously and happily because he was imbued with this same witness, this same bearing of the Spirit upon him, which gave him the courage and the purpose to evangelize at great cost. In fact, he paid the greatest price for his impudence to do what God told him to do against the laws of man. He happily... Uh, He gloriously and happily, because he was imbued with the same spirit, this same spirit bearing witness of the spirit upon him, which gave him the courage and purpose to evangelize. Stoned to death for preaching. You know the story, I hope. And so we read this. But Stephen, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that was only a taste. That was only a a preview. He was going to, moments later, enter into that pasture. Stephen dared to forgive his executioners. And why not? He had nothing to lose by forgiveness and everything to gain. He knew he even saw where he was headed. And there is no animosity in heaven, friends. 
There are no grudges in heaven, and no one gets in who's holding a grudge. I encourage you to go to Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Lay aside grudges. People who have this taste of the, of the Spirit have no place for grudges in their lives. Forgive as God has forgiven you. That is the inviolable rule of heaven. If you don't forgive your brother, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Peter said to the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple. That was the name of the gate. must have been beautiful. Silver and gold I have none, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Notice Peter said, silver and gold have I none, and God didn't shower gold upon him. He said, like he said to Moses, Moses said, how will I convince Pharaoh of your word? He said, what's in your hand? He said, oh, a, a stick. He will use the stick. I'll show you how. Throw it down. It'll become a snake. God will say to you, use what's in your hand. It won't be, oh, I don't have something to do. God has given you what you need to evangelize if you have the Spirit. What I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man walked, and he leaped, and he ran, and he praised God. And everyone in the temple saw him and knew he was the man at the gate. So when they came to rebuke Peter, they said, what shall we do? It's Everyone knows that a notable miracle was done through these men. What will we do to them? They didn't know what to do. You would think they would have said, a notable miracle has been done by God. We should believe in Peter's God. But they didn't go there. You can't deduce your way into the kingdom. So this earnest, this first taste of glory is an inducement to evangelism. For how could this famously crippled beggar be so fully healed and so fully empowered apart from that earnest? apart from that first taste of the Holy Spirit's power within him. He did not need to speak a word. The witness of the Spirit was evident in him. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining with the glory of God. He had to put a veil on. <laughs> Imagine, people could, couldn't look at him. It was too shiny. That was sort of what's going on here. This man didn't need to speak. He, you could see what God did for him. Friends, if he crawled into heaven, he would have been just as saved as if he leaped through the pearly gates, right? It doesn't matter. But God gave him this first taste, and that is the power of God in this bearing of the Spirit upon our spirits. It's the power to witness effectively, even by a man who had no training in the gospel. Those who further the kingdom of God pray for this power, for this privilege to be used in such a way and that's the very thing that Paul's speaking of to these Romans. And now to today's verse. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. The bearing of the Spirit is this very thing. It is the taste of our inheritance. That's why he adds to the verse this explanation. It is the taste of our inheritance, friends. It is the down payment that secures the pledge. It is the Spirit's guarantee that the promise is secured by a pledge. And the remainder will be paid in full at God's convenience and not ours. Remember what Paul said of Abraham? He did not stagger. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He didn't have to see it fulfilled. He just knew it would be in God's time. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Friends, the taste gives you the righteousness, and the righteousness gives you the access. So a first thing we should consider here with regard to the inheritance that Paul speaks of is that he's speaking to Romans. And this is, this is an interesting fact. Romans have a very specific inheritance law or grouping of laws. And it differs from Jewish law. These believers would have known those laws. And they were being persecuted at this time. If you go back to the book of Acts, it'll tell you Claudius was ejecting the Christian Jews from Rome. As I pointed out, some people in very high places in Roman government were adopted. 
I think if you know anything about Roman history, you know this. There was Julius Caesar, then there was the, the Roman Civil War, and after that, Rome became an empire, and Julius Caesar's son, Octavian, becomes the first emperor of the, what is now the empire of Rome. His name is Octavian. He calls himself Augustus, which means the Most High, right? And so he inherits everything that his father, Caesar, had. There's only one problem. Caesar wasn't his father. He was his uncle. So Caesar had to adopt him. He was probably the most famous adopted person in all of history, and he inherited everything that was his father's, because Roman law says you inherit what was your father's. He was king of kings of the Roman Empire, the adopted son of Caesar. In Roman law, all the children of their father partake of an inheritance. There is no priority or primogeniture. You familiar with that term, primogeniture? It's the rights of succession. The lawyers in the room are probably quite familiar. You may remember that in Jewish law, the firstborn receives a double portion. I already mentioned that this morning. It's not that way in Roman civil law. All the children are granted equal portions, and this seems to be a point agreeable to the several commentators I perused. Now, usually when I quote from all the commentators, I'm trying to show you there's a controversy. There's no controversy here. So I want to give them all credit for agreeing on some of these, some of these uh, teachings from Paul. And so that understanding would display for them the true glory and the true value of being heir an heir to a wealthy father. In the case of the Christian, then, our older brother, the Lord Jesus, is not receiving anything that we do not share in. That's a concept for you. We're joint heirs with Christ. I'm just letting that sink in. That's kind of an awesome statement. We're heirs of God, joint heirs, or you might say equal heirs with Christ. I don't think it would be wrong to state it that way. We are the heirs of God, but joint heirs with Christ. It's an awesome thing to consider. The adopted sons and daughters receive the same portion as the begotten son, though he's the only begotten son. The Lord elevates us to the level of the begotten in the things the Father promised to the Son. What God the Father promised to Jesus, he promises to all his children. If you're children, then heirs. It's really that simple. And the witness of the Spirit is our guarantee of this. This earnest, this pledge of the Spirit is our guarantee that we will be joint heirs with Christ in the next life. And this connection, um, the term down payment takes on a real and significant place in our understanding in the passage. I like the term. I think it means a lot to us in our culture. But let me head off some obvious and unwarranted criticisms of my take on this. The divine nature that we partake of is one of value and not one of nature. I'm going to explain that. We become like Christ, we don't become Christ's. We partake of divinity, we do not become divinity. We partake of the gifts of the Father, but we do not become the Father. You understand where this is going? Just as our children don't become us when they inherit our stuff. I inherited the house. I'm dad now. No, you're still you, and I'm gone, and you got my stuff. And we will meet again, hallelujah. So we partake of the gifts of the Father, but we don't become the Father. We're transformed when we're translated into the heavenly realm, and we become like Christ in his perfect humanity. When we see him, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is for the first time. We have a taste now, but then we'll see him as he is. We partake of the divine nature with regard to his immortality, but not in regard to his deity. The only begotten retains his deity and and his immorality. We inherit his immorality. Death cannot hold us. Disease, sickness... Crying, despair, none of those things can take us. That's an important distinction. So when I intimate that this prospect of inheritance is a major, if not the major subject of the New Testament, consider some of the other references. From Ephesians we read, In him you also trusted, 
after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also, after having believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Boy, I could do a series on that verse, I think. That taste of the Spirit, that earnest, is a guarantee of what Paul says next, that you will inherit what God owns. Lloyd-Jones remarks, it seems to be an established rule in the apostles' thinking. He loves to sort of psychoanalyze Paul. It seems to be an established rule in Paul's thinking and writing that he never mentions the Spirit as the seal without at the same time mentioning the Spirit as the earnest, the earnest and seal. Your Bible may say seal. He seals us. It's sort of a, he cauterizes us. He makes us his own. He puts his imprint on us. Sonship immediately conjures up, he writes, the notion of inheritance. The two things are indissolubly linked together. If you're a son, you're going to inherit something. And it means sons and daughters. And he goes on, so having emphasized the Spirit as the one who seals to us the fact that we're the children of God, he goes on to say that for that reason, he's also the guarantee of the inheritance himself. So be like Abraham. Know that he who promised is also able to come through and perform. Friends, true evangelism. There's true and false evangelism. It must always progress to this point with regard to what the believer stands to inherit. Now, I would say to you when you go into your evangelism that you don't run in and say, believe as I do, I do, or you'll suffer a burning hell for eternity. That might not be the best approach. But at some point in the conversation, that has to be established. And a smart hearer is going to go there and you're going to have to be ready to answer that. It might not be the best introduction to the love of Christ, right? Because you don't want to shut down the conversation. You want to keep it going. But at some point, it has to be known that you are either a son who inherits what God has or you are illegitimate and not sons, as Hebrews 12 says of unbelievers. Popular evangelism is different than the true variety. It relates all too much to this world and the alleviation of this world's problems. You know, I remember some very simplistic evangelistic pleas. I remember a young lady one time in a campaign meeting of a preacher at a church I attended years ago, and she stood up. A man who was having particular trouble with drugs and alcohol, which is so prevalent in our society. We were talking last night with old friends from the 60s and 70s who went through that. We're lucky to be alive, some of us, because of it. And now there's a whole new cast of drugs on the market that you don't even know where they are. In those days, at least you kind of knew where they were and what they were. And there's this whole new thing. But her way of evangelizing this young man who had this trouble, she said, don't get high on drugs, get high on Jesus. Now, I don't think that's a really good evangelistic approach. I don't think I'm high on Jesus. I would never present my Christianity that way. Oh, yeah, I'm just high. I'm just floating here in this netherworld, you know? I don't know reality from unreality. I just know I love the Lord and I'm saved. I just, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't compare it. I don't like turning the service into a rock concert, and I don't like turning evangelism into a panacea for all your ills of the moment or perceived ills. Today we have a whole roster of perceived ills that we don't really suffer from. We only think we do. So popular evangelism relates too much to this world. Today's evangelist says so much of what the Bible says so little and so little about what the Bible says so much. The Bible speaks more of eternity. Some of you say, I should speak more of hell. Well, let's do it now. The, the, the Bible speaks of a fiery destination for those who don't know Christ. A fiery destination where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I don't know how that works, but it doesn't sound good. The gospel call was always the call to escape the wrath to come. That's how Romans 1 begins, right? Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I'll overcome the world. He didn't say, I'll come in and overcome all the tribulation so you don't have to suffer it. And the verse says, if indeed we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together. He expects us to suffer in this life. Thankfully, 
There's breaks in the suffering. Times of joy, and I suggest we enjoy those without any guilt. So we have to, to where it's the call, evangelism is the call to escape the wrath to come. Friends, we're all involved in politics, I get it, and I approve. But we're not called to fix this world, and I have no hope that that will happen. I just don't see it on the horizon. That's not to say that the witness of Christ in the world didn't improve the world. Of course it did. It improved the world and its institutions. That's the history of Western civilization. It's not what it should be, but thank God it's not what it might be. Right? And that's because of the intervention of Christ, making the world livable for his people. The essential message of the gospel is that the world is corrupt, and by the power of God, we're saved out of this corrupt world. Be saved from this perverse generation, Peter wrote, or Peter preached. The whole of the Old Testament was a search for this truth. It was shrouded at times in history, but is now clearly revealed from the book of Hebrews. We read this of the saints of old. They all died in faith, not having received not having received the promise, but having seen it afar off, and were assured of it. They embraced the promises and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is not their home, and they knew it. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We sang this morning that, the, that we inherit the nations, that is, the nations of the remade world, that God destroys in his glory and remakes. Faith, the deposit, the seal, the guarantee of the inheritance that awaits the saints is the earnest pledge of the Holy Spirit who is God. We receive a glimpse of it in our time. We receive the fullness of the promise in later, latter times. But most of the promises pertain to a time that is yet afar off, though closer than it was to the saints of old. We're getting closer. And if you talk to me afterwards, I'll tell you exactly how close we are. No, I won't. I don't do that. No man knoweth the day or the hour. It comes as a thief in the night. Friends, uh, friends rather, evangelism was never a promise of a perfect life. So I would not evangelize that way. Perfect happiness will not be given in this life. Life's hard. Evangelism is about the escape from the wrath to come. That was the message of John the Baptist to the Pharisees and Sadducees. They came up and he said, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Paul's purpose in writing to the Roman church was this very thing, this escape from pending wrath and an all-consuming fire. He writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. There's plenty of suppression of truth going on today. It's hard to know the truth of a thing today. That's why I say, vary your news coverage. I tell everyone that. I don't say follow my little uh, pet talking heads on TV or or the internet, I just say vary your coverage because everything's biased. And I, don't, I, I wouldn't mind bias at all if people would just admit to it, but they won't. So people think they're hearing unbiased truth when they're hearing prejudiced lies from people with an agenda. God hates that. Wrath is coming upon this earth because men suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. He goes again, he says, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness. He says further, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Then he says, God gave them over to a debased mind. We see plenty of that today. That's why I speak out in crowds these days, because I want to know how pervasive the debased mind is. Thankfully, it's less so than you might think. But if we don't speak up, I'm convinced we'll become debased ourselves. I think the speaking up, the proclaiming of simple truths, friends, I think it's cleansing to the mind. I've always said, faith doesn't make us quaint and unsophisticated. It gives us mental acuity beyond what the normal man has. We have the mind of Christ. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and proclaim it. 
The gospel that focuses on this world only is an impoverished gospel. Our inheritance is not a reformed world. Our inheritance is not a refined world or the world that we know and love. We're saved out of the world into a new realm and a new world. And the saints of all generations endured persecution for proclaiming this wrath of God to a world that was not interested in hearing it. What did Jesus say? It shall be as the days of Noah unto them. They were marrying, giving in marriage, right? Eating, drinking, and making merry. And then the flood came and washed them all away. He says the end will be like that. People won't be expecting it. They won't be, the, the, the meteorologists won't be predicting it. It'll just come. By the way, the meteorologists are the false prophets of the day. <laughs> I'm too hard on them, I'm sorry. The end will be as the days of Noah. To preach the saving of this world is to reach for a corrupt inheritance. Friends, I want more than this world. Why? Because God has promised more. Christ did not come to save the world, but to save his beloved out of the world. Sorry if I sound like the guy with the sign in the subway. But alas, he may be the last true evangelist of us all. The end is coming! Prepare! You know, we said, man, what a nut. Look how he's dressed. But maybe, maybe he's saying the thing that we need to hear. Then shall the king say unto them, Jesus said, on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The inheritance is the theme of the Bible. The inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the promise. It's from the beginning. That's the inheritance of the faithful. As the risen Christ said to the apostle on the road to Damascus, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. O oh, Father, we are children and heirs. Let, the, we, let us be assured of this truth by the bearing of your spirit in conjunction with the preaching of your word, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.